Hello, it's Deb, the host of Deb's Data Dojo, part of the Calling All Beings podcast network. Today, I have Major Lori Rayfelt. Lori joined the military at the age of 18 and served for 27 years. She began with the U.S. Air Force before later serving with the Army. During her time at RAAF Benchwaters with the U.S. Air Force, Lori experienced multiple paranormal events, including seeing a UAP and experiencing time loss. Welcome. Thank you. <laughs> so for those who are not familiar with your story, I was wondering if you, I know you have spoken about it many times, including on the Big Phone Home and on other podcasts, but I was wondering mm -hmm. if you could just provide a short synopsis for people about your story, the people who are learning about it by coming to the dojo to listen about it. A lot of times I try my best to, um, when I'm sharing the story, is to get people a feel of, of where I was, who I was, and mainly how I navigated my way through that time period. Um, it was 1978 when I went into the Air Force. I had no background of the military whatsoever. I was living on Long Island. We don't have any bases there. Uh, the closest I ever saw a military person was when we would pass by the recruiting office, and I never even thought I'd ever walk through those doors. And I, uh, my mom and dad divorced, so uh, there wasn't that much money. And I was planning on going to School of Visual Arts in New York City, um, but they didn't have dormitories and it made it logistically impossible for me to go. So I, as a kid, I was pretty creative. I loved photography at that time. And uh, I was hoping to uh, get my degree in film studies. Well, after uh, my mom was starting to push us, as soon as we turned 18, push us out of the nest by, you know, just kind of making it a little bit difficult to stay at home. So I realized when I was not going to School of Visual Arts, I started to scramble with the main question, what am I going to do with my life? And uh, I was kind of scared, but I was brainstorming like crazy. Uh, my mom took a, took me and her boyfriend at the time on to the uh, Statue, we went to the Statue of Liberty, and I was thinking about this woman that I knew in my English class who in high school, who uh, had all these brochures of the Air Force. So I, I thought to myself, well, let me see, am I going to check out the Navy? No, I don't think so, because I'm getting seasick on the ferry. Uh, Air Force sounds good. There was no way I'd go into the Army or the Marines, mainly because this is just barely post-Vietnam, and the Vietnam War really scared me. Uh, I think if the Vietnam War was going on, I probably would not have gone in. I, I just uh, just had a bad feeling about it. So I, um, anyway, I went to the recruiting office and asked him, so what's the Air Force about? And he told me, well, what do you want to know? And I said, what the Air Force is about. We were kind of in a loop. And uh, finally, he, he started to explain things to me. And I took the test. To, to go in and then I went to do a physical and then they offered me a job in inventory management. And I was like, 
work in a stock room? I don't want to work in a stock room. So the guy, the recruiter, recruiter said, well, fine. We're going to find something else for you. And if you don't like it, you can say goodbye to the Air Force. And I was like, well, fine. I was really tired. Um, having been up since like four in the morning that, that particular day, he calls me back like three days later and says, well, what do you think of law enforcement specialist? And I was thinking, oh, wow, Charlie's angels action. You know, this will be exciting. Get to see, you know, just running around and, you know, anyway. So I was really, really, really excited. I said, I'm going to be a law enforcement specialist. And I was on delayed enlistment, so for about six months from September 1977 until January when I went into basic training. And the basic training at the time, I was in New York, and so I flew down to San Antonio, Texas, um, and uh, Lackland Air Force Base where I went to basic training. And it was for me, it was not physically demanding whatsoever. We even had to be quarantined because of the uh, Asian flu. And also, the dormitory below us were uh, Iranian um, pilots. So it was just really kind of strange to be seeing different people, you know, Iranian soldiers and uh, and then to find out that eventually in 1979, they would have to be forced to leave because we weren't going to be training Iranian soldiers anymore. Uh, and then I went to technical school and all this time I was having a great time. I was really loving the military. I was, they had, they were feeding me, they were clothing me, they were, you know, they gave me a sense of belonging. And then I went to tech school and it was fun. Uh, we did riot control and waking up the people in the La Quinta hotel. I mean, it was just, really just from a, a person looking out onto whatever we were doing, it was just really, to me, pretty uh, impressive. And I, we, we had weapons training. That was the first time I ever touched a weapon in my life. It was a 38 and I, I knew nothing about guns or, or anything like that. In fact, women were not trained to shoot a weapon in, basic training. The men were, but women weren't. We weren't even issued combat boots because I guess they didn't think we needed them. The um, So when I went to technical school is when I, I learned how to shoot the weapon. In basic training, we actually took a class on how to wear makeup instead. So we were practicing how to wear makeup while the men were, were out shooting the weapons. What? I'm not kidding. Wow. <laughs> so I'm not, I am not kidding. Wow. And yeah, it was, uh, it was, it was pretty, pretty interesting. And so after technical school, I did not have to go through the combat training that the, uh, that the male law enforcement people had to do. It, they call it Camp Bolus. And it, so they stayed at Lackland for another five weeks. At the time, I I got really scared about getting my assignment because we, we filled out what they call the dream sheets. You put down wherever you want to go. And my grandma was living in Ireland, so I put down our I put down England. That was close. If we didn't have any bases in Ireland, and. And I put in, I think I put in other, other places in the States and, but I thought, no, I want to go to Europe. So 
then when it was time to get our assignments, they had asked if anyone wants to volunteer to be a dog handler. And I thought, well, maybe I should volunteer to be a dog handler. And that way I, I, I can postpone getting my assignment. God forbid if I got a place like Minot, North Dakota, or someplace where I probably would not have wanted to go. So I tried out for it. But the thing is, is that during basic training, like I said, we were quarantined, so we didn't run. So I knew about marching, you know, left, right, the whole thing. But they didn't teach me the difference between regular marching and double time. Uh, you know, double time ends up meaning what you're supposed to do is run bat out of hell as fast as you can. They didn't tell me that. So I thought double time was a, 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 just a little bit faster than walking. So it's kind of like a little jog. So I'm doing this little jog and these guys are running bat out of hell. And I'm trying to figure out what the heck is going on. And, uh, and then we had to carry, uh, I had to carry somebody uh, that weighed about 130 pounds, a certain distance, which I was able to do that. Well, I did not, I did not get selected for, uh, to be a dog handler. And I really attribute it to the, uh, uh, it, for the Asian flu that was down there. And, uh, and I didn't know it would double time that. So then I got my orders and my order said, RAF Bent Waters, UK. And I'm looking at it like UK, what's UK? I, I, like I had no idea. And it turned out that, uh, so some guy said, oh, you're going to the United Kingdom. I said, United Kingdom? And I was thinking about uh, Mutual of Omaha Wild Kingdom. And I started mm -hmm. thinking to myself, oh my God, am I going to Africa? Oh, oh wow. my God, how am I going to come? You were oh, so young. <laughs> I know. How, um, how, how am I going to tell my mom that I'm going to Africa? Yeah. Great. So, so um, be before you get to the events of Bent Waters, I do have a visitor. Okay. With us today is DJ, retired <laughs> Air Force. Definitely a good addition to this conversation. We were just talking about her joining the military. Mm -hmm. and DJ is also the host of Calling All Beings. Welcome, DJ. Cool. Major, how you doing, ma'am? I'm doing well, doing well. How many years were you in the Air Force? 21, ma'am. You, you're awesome. What, what did you Thank retire you. as? A chief? Ma I, Mass Sergeant. Mass Sergeant? Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. And, so. uh, yeah, I was just talking because my first 10 years, my active duty time was Air Force. So, and then yeah. you went to the Army. I know. And Air Force was my first language. When they started talking about platoon, I said, okay, that's a flight. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> the only rank I had the hardest time with were the, um, once I got up to Sergeant Major, Command Sergeant Major, I started calling everybody Command Sergeant Major because, you know, <laughs> but, uh, you know, I was, that but, is... you know, I love I that. Yeah, I try to tell people I speak uh, I speak Air Force, and they're like, "Oh my God!" I tried to keep it quiet that I was when I went to officer training school, that I was in the Air Force. And the first day, they said, "All right, everybody, take out your Alice pack." I'm like, "Alice? <laughs> who's that? Who's Alice? Huh? Who's Alice?" And they're, and they're like, okay. "Oh," and they're like, "Oh, that." And I'm like, "You mean the rucksack?" You know, it's like going to a Navy building and they say, you got to go up to the third deck. 
I'm like, hello, we're not on, we're not on a boat. We are in a building. Okay. Deb, in case you just, I just want to say in case you don't know, everybody, the Marines hate the Air Force. The Army hates the Air Force. The Navy hates the Air Force and the Coast Guard probably also. Anyway, well, go ahead. Well, I had a very different time. impression of military when I was volunteering for a military hospital. I won't name which one, but um, let's just say the president likes to go there. But <laughs> <laughs> yeah, oh. so um, but it used, yes, it used to be all Navy. And yeah. of course, I got a very different impression about the different groups of people. And I felt like the Air Force was kind of like the wilder group. <laughs> Oh, oh, that's interesting, Deb. I've never heard that. Okay, yeah, the Navy to me was the more eccentric group, to be totally honest. And the Army, they they didn't they didn't mess around as much. They were pretty kind of normal. And then the military was like, you don't go hang out with the military, like not the military, the Marines. You don't go hang out with the Marines. Yeah, well, once once a Marine, always a Marine. I I know that. I've seen these guys. I'm like, that's that is so true. I mean, they 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 probably still fold their underwear and do all that stuff. Right. Yeah, they're just very very different vibes from each group. But for me, whenever I hung out with the Air Force guys, like because my you know from my dad who was act, uh, active army then retired army mm-hmm. you know he was around them a lot uh it was just they were the more wild ones <laughs> like I don't know. yeah well i i i kind of think that well you know it really depended on on the career field you were in um working in law enforcement that was a whole different animal than i i switched over to um television production after yeah. five years of law enforcement and because that's what I wanted to do in college. So um, it, it made sense. And, but, but law enforcement working at the squadron, I mean, I was so upset when I found out that we would still have inspections every, every day, except they called them guard mount. I'm thinking, you mean we got to do this every day? It's, you know, none of the other, if you were an electrician on the helicopter or anything else, you didn't have to, you know, you, you could do, pretty much anything. And, but, but, but we had to make sure our uniform, you know, everything was, you know, we had, we had to be inspected and, and, uh, and I didn't know about gate guards. That was the other thing, you know, even basic and tech school, they didn't really teach us about that would be one of my key main jobs when I, when I got over to Bentwaters and, uh, that's times. okay. I guess that's a good segue to get back to yeah. where we were with uh, you had just entered Bentwaters. That's where yeah. we were. Yeah. Were- I, yeah. I was really, well, before I, I got to Bentwaters, you know, and I realized that United Kingdom was not Africa and I'm now I'm going to England. I felt like I wanted free vacation. I was so happy. And I just assumed that the uh, Air Force bases over in England, overseas were, especially over in over at Bentwaters would be just as nice as the ones at, uh, at the state side. And uh, I, I was in for a big surprise, but I was totally indoctrinated, brainwashed the whole thing. I was like gung-ho. I made my mother and my sisters and my brother sick. They were like, will you knock it off? And I'm like, yeah, but what we did there when we went to the chow hall, you know, blah, blah, blah. And um, yeah, so... I got my orders and I was home and I got a letter from the, from the, um, squadron commander, major Ziegler. 
and welcoming to Bent Water. So now I'm like, I really, really can't wait. So there's a, a photo of me that I'll, uh, I might have to share with you later on um, that shows me and I was wearing, I wasn't even wearing the uniform of security police. I was not wearing the, the military beret. I was wearing this pillbox hat that I looked like Jackie Onassis or Jackie Kennedy um, <laughs> yeah. at the time when she was, you know, the wow. president's wife. And uh, the, the outfit was, I mean, I just felt like I was wearing an antique, even in nineteen in 1970s. <laughs> and so, but, so when I got there at, at Bentwaters, uh, after a long trip, well, first I had to stop and drop off some guys at Scotland, some Navy guys. And then we got back on and we finally landed in Mildenhall. And Mildenhall was beautiful. It had, you know, Mildenhall? I was stationed at Mildenhall. My Mildenhall rocked. Yeah. They even had an ice cream dispenser. I mean, wow. <laughs> my wow. standards weren't very high, but, but they had these buildings that looked like a... Uh, a lot of brick buildings that kind of gave a look of like being in Cambridge or being someplace nice. I get to Bentwaters. I don't know if you've ever been to Bentwaters, DJ. I think I might have done um, M16 training there, but oh, okay. I, I don't think I saw the base or anything like that. Yeah. Yeah. We, we went around the roundabout as we're approaching Bentwaters and we come across this plastic Formica box that was the gate shack. And past that were Kwanzaa huts. I felt like I went back <laughs> to World War II or World War I and in not a nice way. It was like everything just seemed run down. Um, and on top of it, the place just had a really bad vibe. I, I mean, I kind of felt this heaviness, like a weight was, was on, like there was something in the atmosphere that just wasn't right. That was, that was my first strange feeling, but I thought, well, maybe, you know, I'm tired. I haven't slept in almost 24 hours or more and I'm getting cranky and just get me, maybe just get me to my room. But first we stopped at the chow hall and the food was disgusting. I mean, <laughs> I was like, I want to, I want to go back to Milden hall. <laughs> Please. Can I go back? Can I just go? Um, but, you know, I tried to think, well, it's got to get better. It's got to get better. And uh, I started going through training. And at the time, a lot of the sergeants were not, they, they looked at me and like, what the hell are you doing here? You know, that kind of thing. I'm like, um, here for training? And they're like, all right, yeah. So they had me signing things. And I'm trying to be a good little doobie and, you know, put my put my best foot forward and, and, uh, you know, trying to make a good impression. Cause I was an airman basic. I was zero stripes. I was, I was so close to being an officer, not having stripes on my, <laughs> on my, on my sleeves. So I said, God, I'm so close yet so far. And, uh, so, uh, and then, and then they issued me the alert bag with the, uh, uh, all the NBC gear and the uh, uh, flak vest, it's heavy, heavy flak vest and helmet. And it, it was all stuff from the, from Vietnam War. Right. And so we were, we were definitely uh, 
yeah. So anyway, I had all this, all this stuff they gave me, and they gave me the right beret to wear, and and gave me the youth safety uh, emblem on on the hat, and uh, they put me on Bravo flight, B flight. So I had no idea what the flights were, you know, how they were set up. Found out it was all swings and mids. I'd be working three days from four to twelve, and then three days from twelve to eight in the morning. Oh. And I hated, I hated, uh, I couldn't, midnight shift, I felt like, I would complain. I, I guess I did complain a bit. I'm like, I'm like, no one in there, no human should ever have to work these hours. Um, but I didn't say it to, you know, the people that would have really cared. Uh, so, so I feel I, like we definitely have um, a good understanding of what has happened. An 18-year-old who hadn't had use of a gun before was handed a gun, given some training, some really odd training. Mm -hmm. <laughs> DJ, you missed where mm -hmm. they were training women to put makeup on. Oh, yeah, well, and, and, I mean, yeah, yeah. it's a very um, useful skill. Right. And yeah. then, and, and then that, that was in basic training when the right. guys went off to shoot the M16. This was back in 78. And then, and then also you enter an area where you feel something's not right. And I wanted to address that in particular, because in preparing for this interview today, um, I detected that there was some stuff going on with you prior to this experience, prior to the experience that we'll be describing at Bent Waters mm -hmm. when you were younger, um, where you were intuitively sensing negative energies. Um, and I yes. thought maybe we could address first the fact that you have this intuition and second, yeah. possibly kind of guess as to what you think might have been going on in the atmosphere at Bent Waters. Because I think people need to understand if there are areas of high strangeness, mm -hmm. there's a possibility that there's a reason for that. And I thought maybe we could kind of go down that avenue okay. a little bit. Yeah. But, but first, let's talk a little bit about how it is that when you came into Bent Waters, you were intuitively sensing something was wrong. And maybe you can talk a little bit about where that came from in your past. Yeah. And well, it was a, it was a feeling that just kind of hung over me. I mean, it felt really like somebody had was pressing down on me on my head, you know, just pressing, you know, like uh, I didn't feel as light as I did. So, and every, it was like the gravitational pull was just really pushing me down. And, and, you know, like I said, I was just trying to brush it off. And uh, when I was a child and I'd say probably going back to about the age of five that I can remember my, um, I, I was, my, my mom would say, Oh, Lori, she can be nervous. You know, she gets scared. And I, I would tell my sister Donna, who was only 11 months younger than me, I mean, we'd be sleeping at night and in bunk beds. And she'd say, I'd say to her, Donna, Donna, I need you to hold my hand. I'm scared. And she would hold my hand because I felt this energy that there was something negative down in the, what we call the cellar, the basement. Um, this, this house had been built, uh, uh, it, it was built by this guy who happened to be a hermit who uh, lived in this. It was a tar papered house. I mean, it, it was, um, but there was something about, I believe the property uh, where I grew up on Long Island is a lot of 
different talks about Native American Indians. And I truly believe that I was picking up a feeling of that something really downright evil happened on the property where my father, uh, my, my parents lived. And then my father just lived there for the rest of his life. But, um, and I, I, you know, and it never, I could never shake it. And then it got to a point when my mom and I decided I was a stubborn teenager. And I told my mom that I wasn't going to move with her and, and, the, and the kids because I had just started ninth grade and I didn't want to start a new high school. So they moved and I'm sitting in the house by myself. It was about four o'clock, five o'clock in the evening when all of a sudden uh, I could hear coming from the basement. It sounded very subtle, but it was like, and it kept getting louder and louder and louder. I mean, at first I'm watching TV and I tried put them, putting the volume up. And it, it got to the point where I just, I couldn't take it. I had to, I had to get the hell out of there. So I, I got out of the house and went to my babysitting job about two hours earlier than she anticipated. Oh, well, I thought I'd get here early. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, and I had heard that once before uh, when my mother and father had gotten into a huge fight and mom decided to sleep in my bed with me. She was, pissed off at my father and uh and also i heard that laughter and so it was like twice i i have it happened and i even woke my mom up mama you gotta you know you know do you hear that do you hear that because i felt like something was starting to come up the stairs we had a two-story house so yeah i i had those experiences in third grade i went um uh, I was went to a Catholic school, and it was about 1967, 68, when I walked past this double set of doors and saw this beautiful statue of Mary, the mother of Jesus. And I went to Catholic school, and it was beautiful. And But all the statues in that school were beige. They were very, very plain. They looked like uh, carved wood. But but this statue, it was it had a huge amount of flowers at the base and it, and she was holding this huge bouquet of red roses and i mean the colors were just so vivid and then when i passed the second set of doors because i was walking in line like little soldiers see st patrick's school that they they trained me for the air force <laughs> sister edith did and, um, but at that time, and I passed the second set of doors and the statue's gone. So I'm thinking, how could they move such a huge statue from one area to the, to another area? And the, um, many years later, which was only a few years ago, I went back to the school to talk to the principal to tell her about what I had experienced and her mouth dropped when she said, you know, people have been saying that they've they felt the presence of her in that area that you're talking about. And, you know, part of me is thinking, well, we better contact the Vatican and let them know about this. This is a hot spot right here for, for you know, Mary, the mother of Jesus sightings. And, uh, but I was always very, very uh, intuitive. Um, I always followed my gut and, uh, 
I would say, you know, I, I was a very highly creative, you know, so technically the military was not really a good, Air Force was not really a good fit for me, but I finally said, you know what, the Air Force needs me and the Army, you know, so it was fun. Well, um, yeah, anyway. I I had also noticed um, when you were on the podcast with your sister, the Gods, Aliens, and a Cup of Coffee podcast, mm -hmm. um, you'd also spoken about occasionally just sort of having um, like premonitions and you were, you know, would warn people of things in advance and, you know, that was mm -hmm. mentioned. I was wondering if you could elaborate on that a little bit. Mm -hmm. um, and then we'll get back to bent waters. Okay. Well, one example would be with my sister Donna. The um, when about a month before my mom and dad were separating, mom sat us all down and she was trying to tell us something about. Well, you know, your father and I. It wasn't even. She was just kind of saying, well. She didn't even get any of the words out really. And I just jumped in. I was so angry because I was 14. I was just, you know, typical teenager. And I said, You're getting a divorce and all this other stuff. What? And and my sister, yeah. And my sister and everybody was looking at me like, Lori, what are you talking about? It's like, you know, within a month they got divorced. And uh yeah, it was it was just uh Donna always said, How do you know that? And I said, I, you know, I don't know. It's just a feeling that comes over me. And then um, <laughs> there was another time, I uh, can't remember exactly what happened, but I would say, I have a bad feeling. And Donna would say, oh, don't tell me. I can't stand it because it always comes true. I'm like, no. yeah, I can relate. I was once called the harbinger of doom. Yeah. So that's yeah. that's why that's why I, I when you mention that I'm like I recognize that I recognize what you're talking about there. So yeah, yeah. So okay, so you are an 18 year old with intuitive abilities who has perceived things that perhaps other people cannot perceive. You go into mm -hmm. the UK, not Africa. Um, <laughs> just for amusement yeah, right, i mention right. that again united um, kingdom you're, you're sent to bent waters you feel an oppression in the air and then eventually you're assigned to east gate um yeah. are you, and i have set the floor for you to explain okay. what happens yeah well when i when i first started getting when i first got on b flight i uh was uh one of out of a squadron of 200 roughly uh airmen uh there were five of us that were women and i think there was only two me and another woman that were single uh, were living in the dormitory and we didn't even live on the security police dormitory we lived with the women that were in all the other career fields which made it really uncomfortable to have to go back to your dormitory and, and arrest somebody for or apprehend someone for having a a man in their room after hours which I never apprehended until one time this one woman lied. No, I don't, I don't. I said, well, I'll get a search warrant. And all of a sudden this guy, he was folded up inside this little cubicle and he comes and he unfolds himself. And I'm thinking, how did you do that? I mean, it was like, it was like a contortionist. And I said, well, you do have the right to remain silent. <laughs> and I went on that way. But um, the one thing about a lot of the incidences that occurred at Bentwaters were, were just really um, 
uh, through the roof were just really crazy. I mean, there were people doing stuff that I just could not imagine. This, there was a, a, a tech sergeant who uh, was living in the dormitory and he went into the sound center where you could buy stereo equipment and he stole a bunch of, of uh, stereo equipment. We didn't know who it was. And somebody, my flight chief at the time said, um, Dan Kaler said, well, we're gonna keep an eye on this sound center because we think he's gonna come back. And I thought to myself, he's not gonna come back. And sure enough, he did. And what he did is he broke into a window uh, that was on a, that's a roof part of this Quonset hut and he was crawling through the ceiling to get into through a drop ceiling to get into uh, the sound center to get the equipment and take it out and whatnot. And when they found him, he was actually someone went in there and crawled in there and he had a harpoon as his weapon. <laughs> Thinking, oh my God. So, I mean, I saw the harpoon and I was thinking, this is nuts. This is nuts. So I was told to go with another airman over to his room. And when I went there, his room, I don't, I think he must have taken his clothes and stuffed them in the corner because his whole room was, it looked like a warehouse for stereo equipment and for music. And, and of course, and he was there in the room with us. And I said, man, you like music, don't you? <laughs> I was teasing, but you know. I have a well, really dry sense of humor. Um, well, I was going to tell Deb, what's funny about that is when you're in the dorm, you're subject to dorm inspection. So if you stole a bunch of stuff, the dorm manager is going <laughs> to, invariably yeah. they'll do these inspections and they're going to see that you have a bunch of stereo equipment in there. So not, yeah. not a very smart guy. No, yeah. no. But the fact, the fact that he'd been in the military had to have been in almost 10 wow. years. The fact that he would, he was willing to throw away those 10 years and then end up in at Fort Leavenworth. I, to me, it just says something happened to him that he just kind of snapped. And, and we had quite a few guys in working in security police that would take their weapon out and start, they'd shoot it off like at his gate. We had that happen a few times. I'd get a phone call. I'd be on one of the back gates over at Bentwater's side. Eastgate was Woodbridge. And I get a call saying, Rachel, are you, did you just shoot your gun off? And I'm like, what? No. And they hang up on me and they don't even tell me what it's about. I think somebody shot their weapon off. And, uh, and that person would be gone. They would take that person off duty and then he would be processed out. I mean, it's like, so a lot of people started to kind of disappear that way. It, was, it seems, this, yeah, it just seems like clearly a site of high strangeness clearly mm -hmm. a site that's oppressive and it's damaging people's stability yeah. um yeah. and and i know that you had an experience with an entity that you spoke about um near that you found out was likely um a ghost is that correct yeah that, that was that was uh i was stationed at, at, at east gate now when I first got there, they told us, you are in the most haunted county in the world. And apparently they also talked about lead lines at the energy levels, everything intersects. And um, 
and it's really intense. And they're druids, they're witches. There's East End Charlie, a pilot, a German pilot who walks the runway, holding his head in his arm, trying to figure out what happened, why he crashed, because it was a crash base during World War II. And or some a fire the fire department they went out to clean a truck and they found they saw East and Charlie again without his head I, but I guess the head was laughing uh, while he was he was burnt he was like on flames fire and they saw at the very end that he had left a mark uh, like a burn mark on on the uh, the hood of the truck. So, I mean, it really, that scared the heck out of that fire department guy. Um, well, I was, so a lot, a lot of stuff like that happened over there. And, and I experienced several incidences with that, which I, I didn't talk about because I didn't want to, I didn't want to be railroaded out. I, I, I was at the point where I felt like Beverly Waters was my, was my war. It was, you know, if, if I didn't, if I didn't low crawl my way out of there, uh, I would have been kicked out. I mean, it, it just seemed like he, Major Ziegler just had this thing about kicking people out. And uh, so so it, it wasn't a very comfortable situation that I could easily tell my supervisor, you know, like the one incident that you mentioned there, I was at East Gate. And East Gate was on this, it was like this uh, cement pad where a lot of people, uh, some of the other squadrons would put storage stuff, like there were boxes uh, and uh, connexes, different, just different kinds of storage stuff that they left not far from the gate. And so I, I look back and I see this colonel and he's um, full bird colonel and he's in his, he's in his flight suit now, the problem is, is that he didn't have his hat on. Now, I can obviously see he's a pilot when you're on the when you're on the uh, runway or on, you know, taxiway, you don't have to wear your hat or your flight cap or whatever you want to call it. So all I could think about at that point is the supervisors that I work with would yell at me if I didn't tell the colonel to put his hat on. It was my responsibility to tell the colonel what to do. I would get in trouble for what he didn't do. So I'm, I have this nagging sense of, oh, my God, I got to go up to this colonel and tell him to put his hat on. He's like one of the highest ranking guys on the base. So I finally turn around. Now the thing is, there's a fence behind him. And the only way that he could go anywhere, he would have to pass my gate and then he'd be on the perimeter road. And because it was a fence that ran parallel with the perimeter road, or he'd have to be somewhere traipsing around the runway area, which you could, at that time, you could see it. That was before they, they put in this blast wall uh, that separated our road from the runway. Um, so I'm looking around thinking, where the heck did this guy go? And it turned out, that I was talking to, I, I wrote something about, about him back in the day of Netscape and uh, about Bentwaters and, and it, it dawned on me that um, I was, I saw the ghost of uh, Colonel Tommy Thompson 
who was an A-10 pilot who worked out of, he, he actually was one that tested the A-10s at the time down in uh, here in, uh, near Davis Mountain where I live now. Um, I live in Oro Valley, but near Tucson, not Holden. So, and uh, so I described him and I said, he's really laid back and looked like a guy who partied one too many times. And, uh, um, but when I, when I wrote this thing and I was actually uh, in touch with his daughter and she told me, she goes, you, 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 yeah, you saw my dad. I mean, you know, cause I, you know, I said he was really lanky. He was, he was just kind of leaning back, smoking a cigarette, just without his hat on. And, you know, um, and there weren't that many back then. And it dawned on me that he had uh, his, his, the wreckage from his aircraft when he, he was at Chick Sands, RAF Chick Sands during a, uh, what was that called? When, when they have the air show. And he flew down low and his A-10 sort of cartwheel over these uh, trees and he, he died, he died on impact. So, and then we also named a road after him. Well, well, we had Thompson Drive. So, um, but so anyway, I, I just thought it was really strange because my big concern at the time, and it wasn't like I was looking to find a ghost or anything, because at the time I was so concerned that what I thought was a real person, you know, he didn't have his hat on. And I'm, I'm, my whole thought process is going through what my supervisor who's on patrol is going to say, you know, Ray felt you're not doing your job. So. Well, I know. Um, and ob obviously, as you said before, talking about it with someone was off the table back then of course it was it was uncouth no. i think still now today people probably yeah. would think it's uncouth in fact there's someone else who's come out recently um i don't know if you are aware of adrian reister he said that he mm -hmm. saw entities at his base and did not tell anybody um wow. yeah yeah then the, then the next one that I saw, Eddie's, I didn't see. Now, this one was more intuitive in my mind, but I was sitting at Eastgate. And it was middle of the night, and um, there was a gray behind me. Now, if you look at Twitter, you'll see a, you'll see a, my photo. You know how they have the circle with whatever you, photo you have on there? Uh, well, my photo is me standing at Eastgate, and... So you can see how low the window goes on the east gate, and the uh, the window um, was about maybe about three feet, maybe two and a half, three feet. Um, so so what I felt behind me about three o'clock in the morning was uh, this. I felt this deathly white face. Um, with really, really small eyes, but a big head and bald. And he was behind me and, and he told me in my mind, don't turn around. I, you know, I'm not here to scare you. Don't turn around. That kind of thing. And I'm like, I don't care. I'm not turning around. <laughs> Last thing I need to do, I'm at Eastgate. I got the forest behind me. It's really, really foreboding at night. 
And last thing I need is to be scared out of my wits and, you know, um, start causing a ruckus. So, um, then daylight, daylight came and I just kind of went about my, my business, but I, I remember clearly feeling that. Um, and I had a, there was one incident that I actually had over at, uh, RAF Bentwater side. It was near the Ivy Lodge gate. There was a, a LOX, liquid oxygen area that we had to go up and check the fence. And what a lot of the supervisors would do, would put index cards behind the locks with a note on it. It was their way of making sure we got out of the car, walked up, physically touched the lock, and then we went back in. And then we could write on our check sheet that it was secure. And uh, running up, uh, perpendicular, or I should say the road that I was on, there, it ran parallel with the fence to the outside, to the uh, civilian side. Um, and it, it was an area where there was this place called Rendlesham Hall, which was a huge mansion known for, um, it was a huge mansion that in, I think, the 1900s, it was turned into uh, a place for the inebriates. So it was kind of like a, like a, I don't know, psych, a psych hospital or something. And so uh, I, can't, I can't look at him. <laughs> I'm sorry. So I, uh, I, I felt like it was all growth, like a lot of shrubs and weeds. And so you couldn't really, you couldn't see through the fence. Ivy was growing on the, on the fence so you couldn't see through it and i um i just knew that there was some kind of a swamp or a pond back there i just knew it and uh but i wasn't gonna go look uh so i run out there i could feel the hair on the back of my neck standing up and it was like this crazed man with black hair going you know just looking all kind of warped he'd been in the swamp i called him swamp man and uh and, and his thing was to scare the hell out of me, you know, pushing his face up against the, the driver's side door. Because we drove American cars over there, so that's why it would be on the side. Um, and all I knew is I wanted to put the car, the truck into reverse and get the hell out of there. And it would happen every time I was on patrol. It was always that. It was almost like a, it, it, it seemed like nothing, but he it really really scared me and it wasn't until google earth came about that because you know i got curious it was there a pond over there sure enough there is a pond over there and it just really that to me just blew my mind that again it's like my intuition knew that that was there and and that's when right. i learned recently about the um it could have been, it possibly, it could have been somebody from that, uh, Rendlesham Hall. Um, and, uh, there was a huge drinking problem at Bentwaters near the dormitories that was less than a half a mile from that place too. I mean, it was, uh, through the roof where when I got to my next base, it was, you know, young people drink, you know, that's all right. That's cool. But over at Bentwaters, it was it was really it was excessive, and the suicide rate was really high. So I um, 
so it was just completely different it was like it nothing was normal there i mean i i you know and i just knew that when it came to living at the base and working on the base was mm-hmm. was too much i finally got a chance to live off base and that was always my um that that gave me a sense of i could get some peace as long as i was off the base everything was it would things my life would calm down I wouldn't be on high alert. And it does seem like things were attracted to you, possibly because you were able to attend to them, um, which is often the case for people who are intuitive. It's sort of like the phenomenon is aware of it and picks up on it and says, oh, what's going on here? And comes to say hi. Mm -hmm. So, Debs, I want to say I'm a little bit jealous. I was stationed over three years. There's no swamp man. They came to see me. I did not see a headless pilot. I mean, all these experiences yeah. has happened to Major uh, Ray Felt didn't happen yeah. to me. Well, but... I, I never saw the head. I never saw Easton Charlie. Ne- oh, never. Okay. He was one I didn't see. Yeah, but someone else forgot I, to see him. I don't. But, I don't feel as bad now. But yeah. um, no, but no, gonna... no, no, because I'm not done yet. Because oh, yeah. when I was at RAF Woodbridge, at um, this is a little bit before uh, the UFO sighting that I uh, I was in the bomb dump over at Woodbridge, which was butted up against the uh, Rendlesham Forest. And I was heading out with my M16 to check the buildings at, at inside the non-nuclear munitions uh, storage area. And all of a sudden in my head, kind of like with the gray in my head, I saw this, it was like seven, eight foot tall um, praying mantis. And I was like, holy, sh- yeah. I was like, yeah. And and he said, he was pacing. I could see, in my mind, I could see him pacing. And he said, don't go. And I did an about face. I went back to my gate shack and I said, I am not going there. Because uh, <laughs> I, I mean, that one scared the hell out of me. And, and- Yeah, to be clear for listeners, I have heard you say that at the time you were not aware of the praying mantis entities at all. So for you you to have seen one long before you even knew what that was is just another note for people who are Mm -hmm. listening. Yeah, I I had talked recently to Linda Moulton Howe who told me that there was somebody else that talked about these praying mantis people. I wouldn't even talk about this into for, it was only a few years ago that I actually mentioned it. And I cringed at the thought of mentioning it because I thought this is insane. I mean, there was no way I'm thinking, I mean, why would I, you know, the thought of coming up, why didn't I see a giant spider? Well, I'm glad I did not see a giant spider or, you know, but the fact that, you know, and, um, and I found a photo that looked a lot, a picture that looked a lot like him. And I, he's very muscular. I think he was wearing some, he had some kind of clothes on, but he, he just seemed to be kind of like in charge of something. And he was pacing back and forth as if he was just saying, look, I'm really busy. I don't need you to get in my way or something. Then major like, fine. Major Rayfeld, if you're seeing a praying mantis that's working out, that's muscular, this shifts the whole paradigm on these tall mantids. <laughs> but, but anyway, uh, I typically what I do is I come into Deb's uh, mm-hmm. Deb's interviews and I say hello 
to Hello. most of them uh, because you know Deb's awesome, and so is the Data Dojo. But uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna check out now because uh, I have duty early in the morning, so I'm gonna offer a crisp. Wait, a crisp what's it that cool? That's that's, that's army. Huh. Huh. Heard, yeah. understood, and acknowledged. That's what that huh. means, Debs. Huh. All right, uh, Major, it was great to meet you. Um, Very and, nice um, meeting you, too. And keep yeah. in touch if you want me to talk yes, on on your... Yes, ma'am. Yeah, Thank, thank you phone. for joining Debs. I mean, she's... Oh, uh, she's, she's she's awesome. She's oh. like... Ref, like <laughs> thank Amanda. you. All I'm right. here, guys. It's embarrassing. No, just... Yeah. Oh, oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> sorry. One okay. more question before before you go. Did yes, you work for AFOSI? No, I did not. I was a flyer type, uh, flight engineer type, when I, when I was in for about the second, the last ten years, and about the first um, uh, first eleven years or so, I was in mate. I'm trying to think of the breakdown. I think I flew for thirteen years, <laughs> and then the rest of the time I was in maintenance. Uh, well, okay. Yeah. Okay. So, what, what C-130s or what? Yep. I was a flight engineer mm -hmm. on uh, the C-130s at Mildenhall for AFSOC. And mm -hmm. then I did uh, a little bit of Florida where I got uh, most of my beginning training and then uh, out in New yeah. Mexico after that. I, I was trying to tell a supervisor at Nellis Air Force Base that I wanted to be on flying status. And he said, well, in order to get on flying status, he goes, I got to see how you can handle. Uh, and I think it was it was a C-130. And we flew on the ranges, low level. We started mm -hmm. out like like a thousand feet in the air. And then next thing we dropped down to 200 feet. Mm -hmm. we, were, we were just like yanking and banking. And I was like, oh, my God. And, I, uh, I, I told Debs I, that uh, most of my time flying uh, C-130s, particularly MC-130s, if we got higher than a thousand feet, we got a nosebleed. We live between 250 feet and a thousand feet. But yeah. I will tell you one thing that'll make you really happy, ma'am, is that uh, the women's roles in the military have changed significantly. Um, and and the base commander where I'm at right now is a woman, and mm -hmm. I actually flew with her back in in my time. Wow. So there there are women that are showing their expertise in the aviation field. Mm -hmm. all over the place uh today we actually awesome. reached out to uh, a commander at um mildenhall of all places and said you mm -hmm. know what we need two experts to speak about this issue the two names he gave us to contact the squadron commander were two women that were oh. assistant director of operations so that should make all of you feel well that does oh, make yeah, me yeah. feel better. That makes me yeah, feel better. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, it's all major. because of me, a pioneer. Yes, a pioneer. I... Yes. <laughs> Esther so, Blake, right here. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, it was it was not intentional because I had no idea. Well, I didn't you, realize man. there were so few women in. But okay. I it's a pleasure to meet you, and yes, you did pave the way, and it's a much much better space now, and um, I'm I'm even more proud to be part of it now. Oh, well, out. you're sweet. Okay, bye, DJ. Thank you for bye. coming in. Thank you. Thank you, Lou. Okay, so we've established, of course, with um, you've now sort of encountered two entities um, that were possibly three. well, possibly extraterrestrial, right? We had the the gray and the manted, and then of course the the ghost. Which I hate to use that word. Yeah, I feel like I ghost, ghost is apparition. Such, 
Yeah, apparitions probably better. Mm -hmm. um, so you're at and and the atmosphere, and, and, and also the crazy man. Yes, and then yeah. and what you what I had heard prior to um, today was that the that man um, you found out later had drowned in the pond, right? Is that correct? Um, that I don't know. No, I, I would say that that was uh, that could be a hypothesis more than anything. Right. Uh, I I never was able to corroborate it. Uh, right. But yeah, I I just really think yeah some yeah okay. some either somebody killed him or I I I could only guess I could only guess or he was really really drunk maybe he 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 went off the uh, you know he okay. fell off the wagon and. Yeah, literally and figuratively. Okay, so um, so I I think that we have established there's definitely a lot of high strangeness that happened at Bentwaters. Um, of course, a lot of people know. Um, some years later, the Rendlesham Forest uh, incident happened, um, and we'll get to the UAP incident that you had, which mm -hmm. um, to me they're probably very much connected because of the timing and location. Um, and I just, I suspect that that's the case, but you're mentioning ley lines earlier and mm -hmm. I tend to uh, think about how the Navy worked pretty diligently and mapping out the magnetic fields of the planet. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people point to certain sites that have high rates of disappearances. You know, I hate to say this, but the Bermuda triangle, uh, mm -hmm. you know, the Alaskan triangle, um areas like pine gap in australia so do you think there's a chance that it's the electromagnetic field um in that area that increases the amount of paranormal activity oh i i think that um one of the one of the things that may have caused the um, um what was going on at Bentwaters and woodbridge also had to do with all the top secret stuff going on at Bogsy Bay, which wasn't that far from where we were. And uh, one of the uh, experiments was, for instance, um, Cobra Mist, where they were practicing, it was a Cold War, so they were practicing, this is back in like the late 60s, early 70s, uh, mm -hmm. uh, radar jamming. And I, mm -hmm. I think that you know, our government, sometimes we get so close to playing around with stuff. We really don't know what we're doing. And mm -hmm. in the case of this thing, uh, at one point, I think it made a high pitched sound. And then they found out that the sound did not originate from the equipment. So instead of trying to figure out more what happened, they just kind of took it apart. I, so part of me thinks that maybe there was a, like somebody punched a hole in some kind of a, you know, into some kind of like a easiest word for me to say, like a portal or, or they punched the hole okay. into something. And wh whatever this hole was, it was pouring out all this negative energy, whatever was going on. Okay. It was like a really, really bad leak. And it was like all this negative energy was coming there. And, uh, and I think that's what I was feeling. And it, it never stopped it, but the, um, I mean, it totally took an effect over my body. I had put on a lot of weight to the point that mm -hmm. my mom didn't even recognize me at one point. 
Wow. And as soon as I left there, I, well, you know, my, it's like everything went back. It's like my weight went back to normal and, and whatnot. So, um, but it was almost as if I was changing, you know, you know, like a metamorphic, not metamorphic, uh, um, just, yeah, yeah, whatever was out there was like, mm-hmm. I just felt like I lost my stamina. I mean, that was right. a scary one. I had a hard time. A car would come by and I was like, I got to get out of my seat and get up and wave the car on. And I just right. felt like I was really like in my mm-hmm. 80s or 90s. I mean, it it was just, you know, it, it just really, really bothered me. And, and, you know, being an 18, 19, 20 year old at that time, you kind of take it upon yourself. You, you put all responsibility that's around you on yourself that even if it's something that you have no control over um, that's happening near you or around you, it, it just seems like our automatic, my automatic reflex was to, to be responsible for it. And, um, and then it was my fault and then I had to fix it and, you know, and then I make it better and then they'll be all happy. But the, the guys I worked with were, you know, I was really in a, a lose-lose situation because they, you know, it didn't matter. I could have been a superhero and they would, they would have still treated me like crap. Um, so I have to comment from a mental health uh, perspective. It sounds like they put you in this environment, which I think they probably suspected was not completely stable. Um, it's they had enough evidence from other people experiencing things. Mm-hmm. Um, did they have any kind of mental health for people? I know that that's as stigmatized still today as the UFO topic, actually. Mm-hmm. So, and I know actually some people um, evaded seeking mental health because they didn't want to lose um, opportunities with their career. Absolutely. Um, so do you feel like they just didn't supply that or do you think people were avoiding um, going to seek help? Yeah. If you, if you were seeking help, it would be on your record. And if it's on your record, someone would read it and someone would say you're unstable. You know, they'd immediately, um, if you're, if you're carrying a weapon, they'd immediately take you off of duty take you out of your job. Um, it'd be like, you'd be branded, you know, and, and, uh, you would lose out if there were, are any opportunities that are still available, you, you would lose it. So, um, yeah, you had to suck it up, suck right. it up, shut up and suck it up. And, uh, yeah. And, and I think, I think for my own, for my own mental health, um, I mean, I do, I, I do fight, um, you know, depression and, uh, mm-hmm. uh, I do have panic attacks and that kind of thing. I mean, right. there are things that I, I, I deal with now that, you know, luckily I've got, you know, the tools and the access to be able to do that. Right. Um, back then there was, no, we didn't have any, you didn't, we didn't have any book anyone you could really talk to unless you had a friend and, you know, mm-hmm. um, but yeah, not, not the kind of help that, you know, uh, that's, that's I just know. I, yeah. I just know that I would have been, like I said, they would have, what they would do is they would, um, uh, in my case, 
back then, they would take you off of duty, they'd take away your weapon, they'd take away your beret, they'd make you wear a baseball hat, and you'd have to go around in the back, sit in the back of a pickup truck, and they'd stop at places where you'd have to pick up garbage or do some raking or they call it leads and seeds duty. So it's mostly walking around picking up cigarette butts and all kinds of things, you know, like that. It was just really degrading. And, you know, uh, quite a few airmen just couldn't take it anymore. They didn't, they didn't want to be there. They thought, I, I need to get out of there. I mean, there were right. people that it was like a fight or flight feeling that they had to get out of there. Um, the hardest one for me was this guy, Dave Belisles. He was mm -hmm. uh a very mild mannered young guy um, mm -hmm. and really, really slim. And people would pick on him. He, um, he got a 35 millimeter camera and he, uh, when he's in civilian clothes, he'd carry it around his neck and, you know, just really proud of this camera. But one day somebody steals the camera from his room. He left it unlocked and, uh, and it was as if he just completely lost it. He was out at the back gate, a Butley gate at, on Bentwater's side. The Butley gate is a, is a shortcut to go from the back gate of Bentwater's to the back gate to go to East Gate over at RAF Woodbridge. Um, so he was at the back gate. They had just recently painted the gate shack and had all these oil rags and, and in this trash can. And right behind this, where they had done the painting, was a petroleum site, a huge petroleum site. And what he had done is he took a lighter and he decided to light all this stuff, all this oil can uh, rags in this um, trash can. And he... Uh, I no none none of us knew about this, and then he um, his supervisor wanted to give him a pep talk and say, "Well, Dave, you're doing a good job. You're doing this, this, and this." And he says, "Oh, by the way," and then Dave said, "Oh, by the way, I uh, I lit up this trash can with uh with all these paint rags right by Butley Gate. You know where those where the fuel pumps are." At that point, his the supervisor took his weapon away. He still had his beret and his his. He was still wearing the blue uh, police jacket and whatnot. But he came up to my gate shack, and he had a, a squirt bottle with a, like Windex in it, and uh, paper, these paper towels. And he started just cleaning my windows. And I said, "Dave, what are you doing?" And he said. Well, I, 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 I can't do it anymore. I'm like, what, what do you mean? He goes, I, I quit. I said, wait a second. What do you mean? You know, because he was a friend. And he said that, well, I lit this trash can up. And that when he told me, I'm thinking right by the fuel tanks, you know, he could have blown up the base. It was, it was that crazy. Um, well, I mean, obviously, yeah. to me, it indicates, again, how unfortunate it is that people consider mm -hmm. mental health to be stigmatizing because of course all the soldiers and military that we have are human beings and yeah. and there is it's worth noting also something called normal psychology so even people who do not have issues can benefit from talking to someone um mm -hmm. and and they prepare astronauts for going out into space 
with psychology, but they're afraid to do that for our military, the people that they hand weapons to. So yeah, it's, yeah, it's, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, he was uh, Dave was gone within a few days. I mean, he was one of the people that just disappeared. And I mean, I told him to go back and tell him that that didn't happen or whatever, you know, because I, I didn't want to see him leave. Uh, but it was, uh, yeah, for me, it was really sad. And, and it really made me angry. It made me angry at the, at the squadron commander, Major Ziegler was not a good commander and he uh with the attrition level of people leaving the 81st security police squadron was was ridiculously high um you know he takes a he should take a lot of responsibility for for the fact that all these um you know uh young people left because they we lost a lot of really good airmen at the time and uh but you know it it was just really ridiculous, but we were, we were pretty much treated, uh, at a, like an animalistic level too. I mean, there were times we didn't have heat in the gate shack in the middle of, mm. dead middle of the winter, or we didn't have bathroom breaks. They thought it was funny if you, you know, because we didn't have a bathroom inside the gate shack. And so, wow. you know, we had to, we had to wait till somebody came and got us and then someone had to stand watch at our post. So, yeah. And, uh, I mean, it got to a point where I wouldn't drink any liquid while I was working because I knew that I, I didn't want anyone to be in control of, you know, telling yeah. me that I could, that could not right. use the bathroom. And, uh, but that was really, I mean, I hated it. I hated right. it. I, it's I, it's yeah. clearly, yeah, clearly trial by fire, so to speak. And, yeah. and obviously, like I said, this, the site itself was not conducive yeah. for that. It was probably yeah. being like between a rock and a hard place in that situation. Oh yeah. And then in February in 1980 is when I saw the, uh, was when I had the UFO incident, uh, I was on patrol. I wasn't by myself. Uh, was with, uh, airman Keith Duffield. I haven't been in touch with him. Uh, for many, many decades, but he, I, the last I heard, he lives in Oklahoma and he and I were on patrol and we were at the back gate at this time, the back gate was now, they didn't leave it open 24 seven. So they shut it, they shut the gate down at, I guess like nine, 10 o'clock at night. And then, then we had to just check to the fence or the gate, uh, to make sure it was still locked. So, so we were back there, um, I would check the lock and then I, I put the, the, the truck in reverse and, 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 uh, drove. So I was right beside East gate, kind of looking a little bit off base yet. I was, um, kind of looking at the runway also when we saw this light, it was a, uh, it was a white, kind of light, kind of yellowish white light. And it was an airplane coming in from the North Sea. And it was, um, it looked like a regular approach. And I mean, I'd seen at this point, this is February, 1980. So now I've been there for almost two years. And uh, so, and I, I really felt like, I had been in war. So I, you know, I, I was not this naive young, you know, I was, 
I felt like I was about 20 years older than I was. And when the aircraft uh, was coming in and it was doing, it was coming in like the low approach. And I kept looking over at the runway light to see if the runway would go on. And because I thought the lights were blue, it's about 300, uh, three o'clock in the morning. And so we're just waiting for, you know, the lights to go on. And in my head, it, I was thinking about, do I have all the documents for, I have to do a customs check when the plane lands. I mean, you know, I was thinking about these things also, what I would have to do once the plane lands. And then the plane got, it got really close to the, uh, it was not, the runway was here and it was kind of like right here. So it was getting really close to the runway. It was probably about 20, 30 feet off the ground. And, um, but it was probably, uh, you know, if I'm way over here, it was probably uh, maybe a hundred yards or something. I, I can never really quite get the, the distance, um, correct, um, uh, in regard to like, if I were to show yeah, you I don't, a map. I have no idea how people figure that out. I am yeah. not a good, good yeah. at that, even with normal distances like yeah. feet. Yeah. So, so anyone out there, if my, my numbers keep changing, it means that it was low yet, uh, and it was relatively close. It was relatively close to where I was, except the light was so bright. I could, we couldn't see through it, but it stopped at that point is when we just kind of looked, we were just, I mean, gawking, we were just staring at it. It's like it was hovering and both of us noticed there was no aircraft sound, no, no sound at all. And, and it was kind of doing this pulsating thing, like, you know, like throbbing a little bit. Um, and then before we knew it, 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 it then it shot up, went up, down, left, right. I always tell people it was almost like the sign of the cross and then it broke into three pieces and it flew it kind of up down left right and then it threw three pieces and kind of did a nose dive before it went shot up into the night sky and uh probably was not even 20 seconds when when all of that when that part happened it was probably a few minutes when it was coming in i kind of think that maybe what happened it saw it it noticed that it saw, we saw it, you know, I'm kind of thinking there was something to do with that, but that's a guess. So I uh, went, um, as soon as it happened, the biggest problem I had was that it flew onto military land. It, it flew, it breached military airspace. And I mean, it flew over the runway. So it's like, so if anything happened on the base or if something really bad happened and I didn't report it, I would get into trouble. And I knew I had to report it. So I hand the radio over. We had these handheld radios. So I hand it over to Keith and say, you, you got to call it in. And then he hands the radio back to me. So we're going back and forth like kids. Like, no, you're, you're, you're the lead patrol. I'm like, oh, damn. So yeah. I get on, so I get on the, uh, uh, the radio and I'm going like police control. This is police for um, be advised. And it was like, what am I going to say? I, I said there was an aircraft coming in and, and the guy who was the desk sergeant at the time, his name is uh, Alan Cohen. 
he told me to get on to the landline. So I got out of my truck and went on, went into East Gate Shack and got on the landline that went straight to the desk sergeant. Um, and he said, what, what's going on? And I said, well, this aircraft came in and then it stopped and made these geometric movements and it split into three pieces, you know, didn't make any noise and flew off and we, the fact that it flew uh, onto military, you know, breached military airspace, uh, I felt responsible to call it in. And he's like, okay, you know, I could tell he was doing that, helping, you know, break out seeing UFOs. And then I said, uh, but he didn't say that, but I did hear that for uh, several weeks after. Um, so he told me to go to the air tower, went to the air tower and, and they had these metal stairs that go up and on the outside of the air towers. And so you climb these metal steps and then you knock on this door that you end up having to kick your foot on the door because the door was so thick and, and it was locked. Finally, this guy, uh, airman, we, he comes to the door and I could see he'd been sleeping. I mean, he was like, oh, well, 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 you know, uh, very disheveled, looked like, you know, he might have had saliva, I don't know. Um, and he, uh, I, I told him what happened and he said, oh, it sounds like there must have been afterburners on an aircraft, but maybe I wanted the RAF the British base. And I looked at him, I'm like, I don't think so. I said, because there were no, no there was no noise. It was, uh, there was no sonic boom. There was no, you know, and then you would have heard it and maybe that would have woken you up. I didn't say that. I probably thought it, you know, but, but I was so disgusted because at the time the technology wasn't quite there yet. And I didn't know that maybe they could contact maybe, uh, another base or, or whatever to pursue it. And I kept looking out at the, when I left there, I was like so disgusted and, and I'm walking slowly um, toward the pickup truck going down the stairs, looking out toward the North Sea, trying to think, just processing everything that's going on and how I had to deal with this responsibility of seeing something incredible yet having to, um, deal with the, uh, you, you know, all the neg negativity. Um, so I was looking at, at the North Sea and, I, you know, I noticed it was like daybreak and I was sort of thinking that's, you know, I, I really didn't connect it. It could have been like, you know, time flies when you're seeing UFOs or, you know, something like that. But, but it went from three o'clock in the morning, and this is February. In February, it doesn't get light out till about six in the morning. I mean, it, it's it's a pretty dark time um, of the year in England. And but you know, I didn't really connect the dots until many many years later to think that you know I think I lost some time. And uh, right, and I actually have pondered that. Um, because I'd heard um, you talk about this some time ago when you were on the big phone home because um, I was, you know, I was getting into UFOs. I was doing research and I was wondering then if the time distortion we experience could potentially be because of how they travel because people think that they're folding us uh, 
you know, space and it's a uh, space time issue um, for travel, um, especially since, you know, you saw them moving rapidly. Um, mm -hmm. I just wonder if that has something to do with it. But other people think it's, of course, you know, you lose time because they want you to forget something that mm -hmm. they're doing something at that time. Um, but you saw that the UAP depart. So I don't know. It's a conundrum. Mm -hmm. uh, unless they came back and you don't remember. Um, well, yeah, I kind of wanted them to come back, at least at time when I thought I was, be, you know, when I consciously mm -hmm. wanted them to come back because it, it was like, wait a second, you know, it's like you wanted to do a replay on it. And, yes. Uh, and and you know we waited it's kind of like we were looking well maybe it'll come back i mean it just went by once before so you know why not um but i started after that happened um well when i left england i started to have really uh uh I, people could tell that i like i went they could tell i went through something the people that got close to me they could tell that's something happened but I really buried everything it, it wasn't until about 1995 when I found out that Larry Warren wrote this book left at East Gate and I thought left at East Gate it also it's like East just here in East Gate it was, it was as if the the walls around my memory were crumbling and you know my feelings everything was gushing out and I um started to have i don't know exactly when i was having these recurring dreams but i was having recurring dreams almost consistently i i still do and in my dreams i'm driving around bent waters and i'm trying to tell people i don't belong here it's like i don't belong here this isn't my base and whatnot and next thing i know i'm on a i'm in the desert and i'm going down this road and i i come up to this um this pond of water that's really aqua colored water. One day I get a National Geographic magazine and there's my pond in, uh, in the water. It was called Posa Azul. And it happened to be about roughly 50 miles from the zone of silence in Mexico. And, and they're known for having um, these um, uh, Pleiadians that, that, you know, help people. If you get lost in the desert, I guess they're kind of like Boy Scouts and Girl Scouts. Like they'll help you. They'll say, hey, look, you're stuck. We'll help you get out. Um, but they're tall. They're blonde. Um, but they're kind of there to help. Now, the interesting thing is, is that, so I know Pleiades has a, a role in this whole thing. That, and and I had to connect it with Bentwaters. And the Bentwaters connection was the um, Sutton Who, S-U-T-T-O-N-H-O-O. -O. It's a place that is not even a quarter of a mile away from uh, RAF Woodbridge. And uh, there's a film out now called The Dig, if you ever see that. It's, it's about Sutton Who. They found this... Uh, a uh, big ship that they buried, uh, but there are these mounds that are over there. And the I mounds, did see that. Yeah, and the mounds are shaped like Pleiades. And hmm. 
that to me, that was a connection. Uh, Pleiades has, has a big piece in this. And I do drive a Subaru, which is part of Pleiades. So there yeah. you go. But, uh, yeah. but anyway, it's, uh, but the dream, you know, it just blew my mind when it took me to find out this place is Zone of Silence because I'd never heard of this place. And and then there's line, you, you talked earlier about the line, different lines from, there's a straight line from the Zone of Silence and it's in the, uh, Mapini, uh, I don't know, it's like the desert. I wish I, could, I almost want to say biosphere, but that's not it. But there, if you ran a line on the equator, it runs straight into the Bermuda Triangle and also is connected with the, uh, uh, what do you call that? Those pyramids. And mm -hmm. it's just a lot of these connections. And so, and all these connections are also connected to Atlantis. I mean, it's, right. it's, I'll it's, be honest. Um, I just, I'm just hopeful that we'll get some scientists looking at this and like really looking at all aspects of it because there's just so much that we don't understand mm -hmm. about what's going on with this if you've looked into um jack Bollet, he talks about how the phenomenon has sort of a trickster element so the entities that people think they're seeing may not be what they actually look like um mm -hmm. other people who allegedly witnessed roswell said similar things like you know what they thought they saw at roswell may not have been actually what people saw and there's also been a lot of misinformation about cases mm -hmm. like roswell that confused the public and even um kenneth arnold's case because they misunderstood what he said and everyone assumed he saw flying saucers and he later drew for people what he had seen it was not a flying saucer at all he was describing how the object acted on the water so I feel like mm -hmm. there needs to be like a lot of um, careful research done based mm -hmm. on facts so that we can find out answers like are the ley lines impacting areas like bent waters? Are these craft causing time dilation effects or something that mm -hmm. may be impacting humans nearby? And I know that's part of the law now, the biological effects. Thank goodness that's part of the law now. Mm -hmm. um, whether or not psychology is part of the law, I think I'm going to have to ask. <laughs> like, I'm, I'm curious about that, yeah. you know, um, because, of course, I, I see a lot of other effects that people aren't discussing. But um, I feel like it'd be, I really want us to really get to the point where we're doing the real heavy research on this and trying to mm -hmm. understand and I hope yeah. that we get to a point where we get more information rather yeah. than us being forced to speculate and try to understand. Yeah. Well, I know, I know in, um, in December, it was, uh, about 1996, 97 is when I felt like I had an awakening and I found out about when, uh, that, that the UFO came back, um, in December of 1980. The interesting thing was that I left Bentwaters December 15th, roughly 1980. So I, I actually missed the sighting uh, when the colonel saw it. And it made sense to me that when the colonel, colonel Halt saw it, just the fact that he had that credibility of being a colonel. Um, and I knew Monroe Neville's that went out there with, with the equipment and, he, and he's a straight up guy. And, uh, 
you know, a, a lot of the, a lot of the people that were out there in the field, I mean, they all experienced something. Um, uh, each of them really experienced something very different and how it affected them. Um, one person had the, uh, Jim Penniston had the X, uh, had the binary code going on. Uh, John Burroughs wrote a really good book. He wrote that weaponization of an unidentified aerial phenomenon. Uh, and, and that's, that's a really good book because it, it talks about some of the differences that were going on with, with the people and, and how they, they responded. Apparently he disappeared at one point. And, uh, in my case with my, with my thing, I've been planted with this recurring dream and, um, you know, you get to the point where you feel like you're on the, the, the film Close Encounters of the Third Kind and you're saying, why do I know what I know? There's no way I should know what I know. Yeah. You know? It's funny. Uh, I find all the pieces start coming together when I do the research, when I do the research I want other people to do. Um, mm -hmm. and, and one thing, one of the pieces is something called collective consciousness. And I feel like we're all capable of tapping into that. Um, I've also looked at things that have to do with genetics, which kind of ties into these talks that people have had about hybrids and ancestry and all that stuff, even ancient civilizations. Mm -hmm. But the collective consciousness, I've, I've also had some interesting experiences Mine are not through dreams. Uh, mine are during meditation. And I find mm -hmm. that other people have had those shared experiences with me. Um, and which sounds, you know, for anyone who hasn't done the research, probably really unusual. But then I hear things about remote viewing and stuff like that. And I'm mm -hmm. like, could we all be having some kind of remote viewing experience? Mm -hmm. yeah. And apparently those have been going on for centuries. Um, so mm. you know, the Vatican has archives about that, you know, people, wow. yeah, so, yes. If you read, um, American cosmic, um, that's one of the, the author's goals is to go to the Vatican and look at the archives and she is looking into, um, I think it was a saint mm -hmm. who had a remote viewing experience essentially, mm. and it's in the <laughs> archives. Oh. The puppies want something. Yeah, yeah. Be quiet. <laughs> I know what's up. Okay, so yeah, that's Doctor Pasolka's book for those who are listening. So sorry I, about that. It's okay. I just I think that you know I think there's uh, pieces that connect everything, mm -hmm. um, and I think that's what ultimately people should be aware of. There's everything. Well, yeah. And, you, you know, I completely agree with you 100%. In fact, you're really telling my story. And my story is that we all we all are carrying pieces of the puzzle. And it isn't until people get away, people have to get away from, um, well, this is what happened to me, and it's only mine. And then yours doesn't count, because it wasn't part of this, or it didn't happen during these few days. I think there are a lot of pieces out there that are so important, even as tiny as they can be. And, um, and, and that each piece has value to it. 
and without each piece, you know, the story won't come together. But you, you've got a lot of, like you mentioned earlier about the UFO community, you got a lot of egos there and you got a lot of people that don't belong there, that are there, that have a huge mouthpiece and they pretty much take over the, uh, the narrative. And I really, uh, it's discouraging. It's discouraging. And yeah, I think you know, I... It doesn't just discourage people who have experiences. I have to say sometimes that discourages people who are in Intel and the government who would mm -hmm. have maybe come forward and provided more information. Um, I know for a fact, because I have some friends who are in that position, um, they have been discouraged to come forward mm -hmm. because they've yeah. seen, they see how the community reacts. So oh, yeah, I, yeah, yeah. I, I mean, know. I mean, it, it's pretty, it's pretty, it's pretty vicious, you know. And I, uh, so I just try, and that's why I, I started that podcast with my sister, and right. uh, we we actually did one today with um, Celestine Star. She was okay. actually on the cosmic. Uh, she was actually the, the person in charge of the cosmic. What they call it? cosmic cafe, part of. Uh, contact in the desert and okay. she is phenomenal um and she goes down a road that makes more sense to me and and that has to do with um mm -hmm. when you start looking at it synchronicity and you know things that have uh coincidences and how how things happen and it's in some cases it's uh it, some people might say oh laura you're starting to talk like new age or whatever but the point is, is that I think we are through vibration and frequency. I think we are going to uh, higher levels. And I'm thinking that that's what's going to be our communication, our pathway to really understand what's the beings that are out there. Right. That are because they are communicating with us. And I, I truly believe that. One thing is they are not a threat. They are not a threat. They are, they, they could have destroyed us long ago. I think we're just like a little ant, you know, that they could have just stomped on us and we'd be gone, but they, they don't, I mean, hundreds of thousands of years and, you know, planet earth is still here. Yeah. I think, I think, that, I think uh, that they're concerned about how we treat our planet, our planet. Right being a sentient being. I think, I, think, uh, yeah. I think some people are concerned not about them being a threat, but um, they're concerned about the fact that they act sort of in the shadows. They're not blatantly clear with people about what they're doing. Some people are concerned um, that they are extremely powerful so if we do something like you know some people who get bitten mm -hmm. on the ankle from a little dog you know how mm -hmm. do they respond sometimes they're like oh it's just a little dog other people want to swat the dog right mm -hmm. um so i think some people are concerned where their dog in that scenario some people are concerned mm -hmm. that they we do such damage to our planet they might decide that we're too much of a threat you know, yeah, so yeah, 
And some people are concerned that we're their guinea pigs because we do uh, have a lot of reasons to believe a number of people have been abducted against their will um, to mm -hmm. be experimented on. There's considerable mm -hmm. evidence for that, although mm -hmm. other people say there's no evidence. I disagree with that entirely. Yeah. I feel like witness statement, including multiple witness mm -hmm. statement, is pretty strong evidence. So, yeah, I agree. So I um I know that you know we've we've got a little long with the interview today, and yeah. I don't want to I don't want to hold you too much longer. So I wanted to get to something that I think is important um, to emphasize before we close out. Okay. Um, I want to point out again the name of your podcast. Could you please tell people um, the name of your podcast, and then I'll explain why that relates to a question. Okay, it's called God, Aliens, and a Cup of Coffee. Right. Now, the reason mm -hmm. that's important is because other than Dr. Pasolka, who's done research on religion for American um, Cosmic, which I strongly recommend to you because her background, I think, was also uh, an emphasis on Catholicism. Mm -hmm. um, I, I feel like a lot of people are... are concerned about religion versus UAPs. They see it as two different things. Um, and I don't want to belabor this point because I feel like we could talk about this for hours upon hours. But personally, I don't feel like there's any reason to see them as two different things. I understand why people have that concern that, that there would be a conflict between religion and believing in mm -hmm. um, perhaps extraterrestrial beings. I don't see the conflict personally, but I just wanted your perspective on that. Yeah, I um, my um, my my sister Donna and I have a um, have this sensitivity. I I think that she keeps saying that I have a little bit more than she does or whatnot. But it's uh, but when when we get together and we talk, uh, we know that we're talking about often something much bigger than ourselves. And I think, and I think the first couple of podcasts didn't go too well. I think we almost got into a, a fight about religion and Christianity and blah. And I said, no, we can't, we can't do that. We're not doing that. No, no, no. Um, and, and I'm not just, you know, so she was, uh, because she's a devout Christian, but when we start talking, and when we were talking today with Celestine Starr, um, we, we we finally realized that we are talking about, you know, this entity that's out there that um, that some people call God, and some people call I mean all these things that we don't know, all these unknowns that um, like I I can feel. A war, a war going on that you can't see. It's like this invisible war between good and evil, that kind of thing. Yet you you do know that, like my thought is that kindness is a, a weapon. It's a sword, and same as love um, against this evil. I mean, you could destroy and destruct, you know, destruction. Yet, or you can do something kind and generous and. I, I, I do believe that that would be the, uh, these, in our case, our unknown entity, things that we have, would have to have faith, you know, to believe in. 
And um, I choose not to use the word God myself. I choose to use it's like what's out there in the universe because it's uh, because our world is so old. It's older than two thousand years, and you know. And I, I have my I have my my issues when you start looking at the books in the Bible and how they were put together. And when one Pope decided to throw out three books or four books of the Bible in the 15th century, I mean, you know, um, it, it gets a little convoluted. Uh, but I, I do believe um, that there is, that we're here on earth. Um, you know, we're like, we, we have a mission. We have, we have a role. We, we have, you know, and it's what we do with our life while we're here. Um, I, I guess, you know, I'm, on the other hand, with, with, with religion, I was thinking the other day, because when my mom passed away, we were, she had a Catholic ceremony, and it said that God, Jesus will come back to judge the living and the dead. And I thought, wait a second here. I thought once you die, you go to heaven and... And you're judged at, at that point, and then you go in. God says you can come in, you don't come in. It's like to be to have a performance appraisal again, you know, thinking judge the living and the dead. Give me a break. <laughs> yeah, well, well, even it's, in new new age beliefs, you get judged, but then it's a a life review is what they call it. So mm-hmm. I think a lot of belief systems have that you're going to sit down and have to really look at everything. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, but I, I think my underlying thought about it is who are we to limit what God can do? And that's where mm-hmm. I get offended when people get upset about the idea of other entities and how it conflicts with their religion. I'm offended, yeah. like personally, like I'm not an I wouldn't say I'm a religious person. I was mm-hmm. raised Catholic and I stopped being Catholic as far as I was concerned at the age of 18. Mm-hmm. Um, I would say I am a spiritual person, however. Yes. And I, and, mm-hmm. yeah, I'm, I'm definitely what mm-hmm. I would call agnostic. I don't think God is a human being sitting on a throne with a no, big no. white beard. But I will say that it offends me from that perspective for someone to claim that they know what god can't do and i'm like how yeah. dare you <laughs> you know yeah, like, yeah. like that's well, so I... <laughs> and and a lot of it a lot of it is you know indoctrination a lot of it goes back to you know when you're when you're a little kid and you're 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 molded uh right. i was just talking to my uh my partner susan recently and she shared with me that you know i i said well when is it that you know boys and girls really start realizing, you know, that they treat each other differently. And she said, well, there's been a study out there that by the time a boy is two or almost three years old is when he discovers that he does not want to be a girl, you know? Mm -hmm. So, so you got this, uh, you know, indoctrination is just huge how it shapes us how it you know i mean yeah. you know when you're a little kid and you go to catholic school or something it's like you know god the father god the son god the holy spirit okay i can do, i love the, the holy spirit whatever that is i love the holy spirit because i can feel the holy spirit in me i don't know what it looks like but 
but when it speaks to my mind, I, you know, it's good. But God the Father, God the Son, what about God the daughter and God the mother? You know, I mean, it's like. I know, know, the language is it's, tricky. It's, it's because of the patriarchal system, you know? Right. And anyway, but uh, yeah, I digress. I, I just think that, um, you know, being the simplicity to say that there's a war going on and that God is love that's a pretty powerful weapon. Right. And I, I, I would rather go out of my way to be kind to, to those that don't have than um, because I, I just kind of think that's what makes us better human beings to, right. You know, I think, like, I think, yeah, I think people move away from those messages and get stuck on some others. And that's where, it concerns me the messaging of various religious people who are in the community and they can't let go of doctrine and they can't think mm -hmm. of the other aspects. Like I've, I've, there was never a point in the Bible in the new Testament where Jesus said, God could not have made extraterrestrials. Okay. Like there was never that mm -hmm. point in the Bible. Like I'm trying to connect it yeah. back to the UAP thing. He never said, you know, God was limited in his or her ability or it, which is more mm -hmm. of what I think it's an it, but never, ever implied. Right. And I don't even think that's in the Old Testament. I don't think it ever no. says that. Like, and I, it does talk about that there are other beings beyond humans and they mm -hmm. called them angels and they were. Mm -hmm able to fly and taught human beings things and apparently some of them copulated with humans mm -hmm. and um in fact one of them fell from the grace of god and mm -hmm. was given the job of being in charge of hell because mm -hmm. he tried to help human beings become knowledgeable in fact mm -hmm. if you if you look at the story of um adam and eve it's they're not alone in that garden the snake right. that comes yeah. to tempt them that gets the blame for us being intelligent is the first mm -hmm. story in the Bible. Right. So, right. so it's yeah. just very, everyone. Is and, aware. And, and I really, I really think if that story was real, that, that they had actually gone through a portal. I, I, I really think that they went through a portal to come to earth. It might, might not have seemed seem like one, but when they went, when they left Eden, because they couldn't go back. Right. It's pretty complicated to the whole yeah. story, the metaphor. But yeah, but that's just and then, it. And then, and then if you look at the Greek version of that, um, I think it's Prometheus gave humans fire and was basically punished by Zeus as a result. Mm -hmm. um, so it's the same concept of another being comes to help us, makes it so that we can survive and gets punished mm -hmm. um and if you learn about angels supposedly they were very jealous of us they didn't like that we were supposedly in the image of god and all this stuff but but then again you look at all these different creatures on our planet and are are they or are they not god's creatures that's the question i would have for a religious person that says there can't be et right 
are like do do cows look like us no but are mm -hmm. they god's creature still right 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 <laughs> what, what about all the insects that look like uh, right. probably these crazy aliens that we you know uh these these uh designs that we have in our mind of right you know what they look like uh and there's some really bizarre things on this planet some that people can't even fathom i just put a post or I should say a tweet out recently about that. Um, and they still find species to this day. Like we still haven't even identified all the things on this planet, but some of them are so out there. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah, yeah. A lot of them are un way under the water that we haven't been down there right. to see where they are. They've been under a, a thick block of ice or something. And, right. and uh, yeah, there, there's a lot that we, that we don't know. There's a lot we don't know about. Right. We, we don't know so much about what our planet, but I really think that that um, people that the sense of feeling should be seen as something factual. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like I, I, I watch uh, Judge Judy or Judy Justice now and and she said, don't give me your feelings. And I, I feel like that should be fact. That, that should be, I mean, if, if, if it's consistent and if it's, you know, um, like faith, I mean, you know, people are brilliant. People are told to have faith, have faith in God, have faith in things that you can't see that are visible and invisible and, you know, and, and, you know, and that's just the way it is, you know, and, but I, I do believe that if we start perceiving these gifts that that we all have, it's just that some people have it more developed than others, that um, it, it'll just get us closer to, uh, to finding the answers. It'll get us closer to get to the next step of our awakening. And, uh, you know. Well, so. I, guess, I guess for me, again, it's just another piece. God fits in there, whether or not, you mm -hmm. know, god is the right mm -hmm. name so there's a yeah. way to, that piece still fits i don't see how any of these pieces to this puzzle conflict i think we're dealing with a lot of different things when it comes to this phenomenon including mm -hmm. you know the ability to intuit things ley lines mm -hmm. uap yeah. objects um you know dealing with I, I believe even ghosts and things like that are part of this phenomenon. And one day we'll have better answers. I don't expect mm -hmm. to have all those answers. I only need a couple. I'm good if I can just yeah. get a couple. <laughs> I don't, I know a lot of people say we're not going to solve all this for decades. Mm -hmm. I'm good with that. I just need a couple mm -hmm. answers and yeah. I'll be fine. I'm well, and, and true. I think a lot of, a lot of the answers that we find are through our, um, through vibration and through right. um, the frequencies that, that that we all have within ourselves, that mm. the whatever the electricity, the space between ourselves uh, that emit whatever that karma is, you know. I mean, um, yeah, I just really think that there's a lot of powerful stuff out there that we haven't even. I haven't even right. we're, we're again the tip of the iceberg and and then one yeah. day we'll go to wherever this uh, next wherever the uh 
once we go through that wormhole bouncing around and hopefully go toward the light and end up in this incredible, beautiful place, as long as we pass the performance appraisal. Um, <laughs> and then, you know, and then what, and yeah. then we'll say, aha, I got the answer. Okay. Uh, my sister had a near death experience and I, I read up on near death experiences and what people see and what they go through when they go into that process. Uh, I kind of think that the place they go to now is in Pilates. I, I think that's where, um, at least one of the places that they would call heaven. Uh, hey, uh, I definitely think it's an actual place. Yeah. And I, yeah. And I, and I think that, uh, and I, I don't want to go into this too much because since we've been going so long and I, and I know mm -hmm. we need to uh, close up, yeah. but I just wanted to say, I think orbs will play a big part in understanding that for a lot of people one day. Um, Absolutely. But I won't go into that too much today. We can yeah. leave that for another time. <laughs> but... Okay. Okay. Yeah, definitely, definitely. We'll do a part two. You know, I mean, yeah. Or if you, if you re-listen to this podcast and and you think I really want to talk more about this with Lori, you know? I yeah, mean... I think I think definitely going down the path of understanding it in a more spiritual um, sense mm -hmm. is definitely something I'd like to do at some point. Um, I, I think that's a piece of the puzzle. I have had mm -hmm. conversations with people about how this is not just about the objects that people are seeing. There's a lot more to this. And absolutely. It absolutely. It didn't take long into doing the research to figure that out. So thank yeah. you so much, though, for the uh, amount of time you have provided today and the input and sharing your story. I truly appreciate that. I think anyone listening, learning about your story for the first mm -hmm. time will appreciate. Um, and, you know, of course, uh, the people who probably are going through similar experiences, I imagine, mm -hmm. appreciate that, that you came out and spoke. So you should definitely apply well, yourself I, I, for that. I hope, I hope so. I just, um, that's one of the reasons that I, I like to do these podcasts is, is mm -hmm. to keep the conversation going and to, um, because every little bit you, you can glean something and someone you can ask, well, that happened to me or, yeah, I mean, and you feel less alone. And then, I mean, in my case, sometimes when, when someone said that, that somebody else had experienced the, the praying mantis, uh, right. mantids or whatever, at, at RAF Woodbridge, I thought to myself, that blew me away because I'm thinking right. it's not, you know, because sometimes you do think, is this in my head? Is this, you know, I mean, you it's know. interesting how often they're seen with greys, but I think greys are getting used by a lot of different groups, it sounds like. So, yeah. so anywho, okay. <laughs> thank you again. Please tell everyone how they can find you if they want to speak to you, reach you, etc. Okay. Well, I'm on Twitter. Uh, uh, mine's at L-O, and the four R's, I-E-T-R. On Twitter, I'm also on Facebook. Uh, I've got the Rendlesham Lone Ranger UFO site. I am the Lone Ranger. There are a lot of Lone Rangers actually with us. 
you know, uh, but it's nice because uh, I had to get my story out when others didn't want, they didn't, they didn't want to hear my story and only to look at it now. I mean, there's Rendlesham Forest incident and then, you know, and then I found this whole damn minus Eastgate incident <laughs> mm -hmm. just, just to give it that official title. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, um, but I find myself leaning more towards being on Twitter and I do respond. Mm -hmm. I do answer and I'd love to have more conversations like this. Um, and also, and if you get a chance, amazing, amazing, amazing woman to talk to is Celestine Star. And her website is CelestineStar.com. Um, she's just, she's actually a doctor of divinity and mm -hmm. just really, really uh, brilliant. And mm -hmm. uh, uh, that, that was probably one of the best conversations I've had. Besides yours, yours was really uh, rock on. Oh, thank you so much. <laughs> uh, no, seriously, I appreciate this a lot. Well, thank you. And and can you please let people know again the name of your YouTube channel? And then I will close out for okay. tonight. God, aliens, and a cup of coffee. Cuppa as like, if you're in New York, you say C-U-P-P-A, cuppa, coffee. Okay. And... Uh, Sometimes, and that means that we got way off the topic and was like, well, listen, we're just going to drink some coffee and have it, you know, we'll talk about what's going on in our life. Um, but we did and that, try and, we did try and keep a little bit structured. structure. Yeah, that's what I do. I drink coffee for every interview. <laughs> I call oh. it, a, and I call it a chat. So, like, it's oh, more of a go. chat. Yeah, there I like you, to call it. Yeah. So, well, look, yeah, if you want to be a guest on mine, my show, I would love to have you too. Well, well, thank you very much. So to everyone else, all listeners, thank you for listening today. This is Deb from Deb's Data Dojo, part of the Calling All Beings podcast network. If anyone's looking for me, I'm at Study of UAPs on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, Instagram, and I'm at theufoconnector.com. And I can be seen on the Calling All Beings YouTube channel. Goodbye, everybody. Bye.